Good morning. The scripture reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. Well, that was a little bit of a, a bittersweet reading. Frank and Janet Spears, this is their last Sunday with us, and I always love when Frank reads the scriptures, his voice just carries so beautifully, so I was just saying that we'll have to record his voice so he can still have um, the opportunity to read scripture for us, so we'll just play that back, but we're going to miss you, Frank and Janet. I know there's a celebration a little bit later today, but um, moving back home to Portland, which was always the plan, but you will you will be missed. This morning, we start a brand new sermon series called Flourish, and it's on the Sermon on the Mount. So we've covered, over the past few months, starting in in December, we've covered Matthew chapter 1, and now we're going through chapter 4 and into chapter 5. Matthew 5, chapters 5 through 7, that's what we traditionally call, and they're known traditionally as the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we come to this passage of Scripture, we're coming to maybe one of the most well-known and maybe the most influential piece of writing in the New Testament. There's a few thoughts from people on the Sermon on the Mount. Harry Truman said, I do not believe there is a problem in this country or the world today which could not be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. That's a big statement. And then Mahatma Gandhi said in an address to Great Britain, he said, when your country and mine shall get together on the teachings laid down by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, we shall have solved the problems, not only of our countries, but those of the whole world. So those are, those are massive big statements about this section of Scripture uh, from people who, um, I don't know where Harry Truman stood, but those who may have not shared uh, the belief and faith in the gospel and in Christ. Scholars say, New Testament scholars would say, as you look at Matthew 5 through 7, that we would consider this, and they consider this, the epitome of Jesus' teaching. And that's kind of a technical term. An epitome is something that teachers and moral philosophers had in this time. It was kind of their, their teaching for dummies. They didn't have that series back then, I don't think. But if they wanted to break it down and say, this is, this is what I'm all about. This is what you need to know. These are the basics. This is the epitome of what I've come to share. And so, 
as we have this epitome from Jesus, we realize that this is great for beginners. If you have the epitome, if you have the summary, this is a great place for you to start in understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do. But it's also great for those who have been followers of Jesus for a long time. Go back and review. Am I on track? Am I where I should be with the essence, with the heart of Jesus' teaching? So this epitome or this mini-summary of Jesus' teaching not only is a great summary for us to begin with, it's a great summary for us to come back to, I think it's also one of the most persuasive evidences for the truth of Christianity. Whenever you're evaluating a belief system or a worldview, I think there are, there are at least three angles you can take to ask, is this true? Is it real? There's the intellectual angle where you ask questions like, is it reasonable? Does it provide a coherent explanation for the big questions of life? And those are important. You want to examine it from the intellectual angle. There's also the emotional angle. Does it provide rest? In peace? Is there a spiritual reality to this belief system that I experience from the inside as I'm getting acquainted with it? And then the last, there's the intellectual, there's the emotional, then I would call the last one the social test, and that's this. If everyone believed this fully, if everyone was convinced that this was true and lived it consistently, would it create the kind of world and society that we would want to live in? So when it comes to Jesus or Christianity and whether it's true or not, we have this epitome to work with and we should ask this question, if everyone believed the Sermon on the Mount fully, if everyone lived this sermon consistently, would it create the kind of world that we would want to live in? And I think we'll see, and I'd like to make the case that the answer is yes. This would be a beautiful world. This would be a world where we would flourish. This would be a world where we would experience healing. This is the kind of world that we would all want. And so that's why we're calling this sermon series Flourish. That this Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' path to experiencing full joy and to living life as God meant it to be. And I think this Sermon, this, this sermon on the Mount will find Jesus is utterly realistic about the obstacles to this life that of flourishing and of blessing, but he also has great hope, and he's calling forth the best of humanity in this sermon series, or in this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. So as we start this series, first I want to step back and ask some big questions and start asking as we begin, well, what is the flourishing life anyway? How would I describe what it means to flourish? Where have I seen the flourishing life being lived out? Where do I see it? And where can I learn to live it? I think this is where Jesus begins. Before he gets into dealing with the breakdowns of human flourishing and the obstacles, worry, he talks about anger, he talks about conflict, he talks about our marriages, he talks about the nitty-gritty things of life, but first he defines for us what is blessing and what is the flourishing life. And he addresses these questions at the outset and the introduction to his sermon. And that's what we call the Beatitudes. This is Jesus' introduction to his most famous sermon. So if you're following along and taking notes, you'll see in the bulletin on page 6 that we're going to be looking at four things. Number one, where we look for flourishing people. Two, 
where Jesus tells us flourishing people are found. Three, where flourishing people are formed. And lastly, how can we find and how can we flourish? So first, where we look for flourishing people. If we look at the context here, if you look at verse 1, it says, Jesus seeing the crowds. So that's actually connecting us back to chapter 4, where we read about Jesus' launching of his public ministry. And we see from chapter 4 that things were going really well. It says in chapter 4 at the very end that he was teaching, he was proclaiming his message, the gospel. People were listening. He was healing all types of affliction. And his fame was spreading. And great crowds began, began to gather around him. There was this huge buzz about Jesus. And the way it describes it is this buzz, this crowd, this fame was spreading from every part of the nation of Israel. So things were going very well. Jesus was like at the height of his popularity and his fame. So if you're building a movement or if you're trying to create a following, the quickest way to end that and to short-circuit that is to say or do something very unpopular. If Jesus is trying to sell his kingdom and convince people to follow him, the first thing we want to ask is, well, what kind of introduction is he giving here? One of the rules of marketing and advertising, right, is, is to carefully choose who will endorse your product. So if you're selling basketball shoes, you're not going to choose the player who's sitting on the bench so that they'll say, you should buy my shoes because I played five minutes this season and then I got cut mid-year. But you should get my shoes. That's not going to work. They don't get chosen to do the endorsement. And I'm a, I'm a big book person, so I love finding books, and the first thing that I do, look at the title, who wrote this book, I look at the back and go, well, who endorsed this book? And if I'm looking at a book and I'm reading it and it says, I like this book, Bill from Tustin. Well, that's not going to be very convincing. What are your credentials? Who's Bill? That's not going to cause me to want to read that book. To open up Jesus' most famous sermon. It's like Jesus gets the big screens out. If he had big screens and he puts up on the big screen people who are broken, people who are weeping, people who are on the outside, not the inside of society, not people who are moving up in the world and the persecuted. And he's saying, come join the movement. And I think a lot of people at this point are thinking, oh, no thanks, I forgot I had to do something, you know, I need to go back to my home over there, and they just are not quite interested in what Jesus is selling. One obvious feature of this passage is how each sentence begins the same, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And that Greek word, the word for that is makarios. It's hard to translate, different people translate it in different ways. Some say it should be happy, some say joyful, some say flourishing. But the interesting thing about this word is there are other lists like this that were, that were circulated in the first century. And they had a name. They were called makarisms after this word, makarios. And they were descriptions of the blessed life. And they were describing a person, what, what his characteristics were, what he had, everything that was going well, and said, look at this. Don't you want to live like this? Congratulations to this person. And so there were all kinds of lists like this, and they were meant to say, yes, that's the flourishing life. That's the life we're all shooting for. 
So first we see that these aren't commands, bless, blessed are, blessed are. These aren't commands, these are, these are pictures of where flourishing people are formed and found. So this is like Jesus' ad campaign for his kingdom. If you believe in me, if you follow me, this is what will happen to your life. And maybe our response as we're looking at those Beatitudes is, hmm, not sure if I want that to happen to me. Because Jesus completely flips upside down where we look for flourishing people. If we were to complete the sentence, blessed are the blank, what would we fill in there? Blessed are those who are moving up, the successful, the wealthy, the famous, the beautiful, the powerful, the comfortable. When we say, I am so blessed, it's usually when we're enjoying some of those things. And so where do we look for flourishing people? Maybe we look in Hollywood. Maybe we look in the headlines. We look at the top of the org charts in the marketplace, in our company, the people who live in the best neighborhoods, the people who look happy, the people who look most content. And Jesus starts his sermon by saying that we're looking for flourishing in all the wrong places. I remember as I was thinking about this sermon and studying, I remember hearing at some point in the past a sermon where somebody shared a reverse beatitude list, where they took these beatitudes that Jesus shares and they flipped them upside down. And I tried to find that list everywhere, but then I found one list and and the, the author of this list said, everyone should try to create their own inverse, reverse beatitude list. So I said, let me give it a shot and I want to share the one that I came up with. This seems to me to be where we often look for flourishing. I know it's a little small, but I'll read it. Blessed are the self-sufficient, for they don't need anything or anyone. Blessed are the happy optimists, for they are never sad. Blessed are the assertive and the aggressive, for they get what they want. Blessed are those who have arrived, for they can enjoy life and stop trying to change. Blessed are the comfortable and safe, for they don't have to deal with the broken. Blessed are the outwardly successful, for they receive the approval of others. Blessed are the winners, because they end up on top. Blessed are those who are popular, because everyone likes them. Now, if Jesus started his sermon and said, this is the life that I came to give you, I think we'd be more like, yeah, I'll sign up for that. I want that life. I don't know if you knew, but the International Day of Happiness was March 20th. Anybody know that? I had to go, but when I learned that, I went back and said, what was I doing on March 20th? Was I happy? It was, it was a normal day, but, so I missed it. But on March 20th, they all, the, uh, the UN released the World Happiness Report, their 2017 World Happiness Report. And one of the things that came out in that report is that from 2007 to 2017, the United States dropped from third to 19th in their ranking of the happiest countries in the world. And I want to share with you some of the things that were written in this report. The very final section of this report is just focused on the United States and on what's happening with this decline in happiness. So here's a a few things they they, they said, and I'm going to share a final quote. The central paradox of the modern American economy is this. Income per person has increased roughly three times since 1960, but measured happiness has not risen. The situation has gotten worse in recent years. Per capita GDP is rising, but happiness is now falling. 
Leaders are focused on the economic and material vision of restoring the American dream. But the data show conclusively this is the wrong approach. And there's the quote. The United States can and should raise happiness by addressing America's multifaceted social crisis. Rising inequality, corruption, isolation, and distrust. Rather, <clears throat> excuse me, than focusing exclusively or even mainly on economic growth. And then there's the conclusion at the end. In sum, the United States offers a vivid portrait of a country that is looking for happiness in all the wrong places. The country is mired in a roiling social crisis that is getting worse. Now this is the UN saying this about our country. And I was struck by that. How the UN is saying as they look at all the data that we're a country looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Because this is what the Beatitudes are all about. This is what Jesus is saying. That our picture of the blessed life and the flourishing life is off and is wrong. And unless we change that vision and that picture, then we won't find that life. So that's point one. The places where we look for the flourishing life Next, if we're looking in the wrong places for happiness, if we're looking in the wrong places for the blessed life, then where should we be looking? Where is it found? The first four Beatitudes, I think, answer this question by showing us four places where flourishing people are found. So one thing about the structure of the Beatitudes, there are many different ways to break it down. A lot of people, a lot of scholars say it's a four and four structure. The first four go together, and the second four go together as well with the bonus fifth that's added on to the last uh, or the eighth beatitude. And one reason why they say these first four go together is because they all begin with the same letter in the original language, the letter pi or P. So if Jesus used alliteration, then that means I should too. So I'm going to use some alliteration in these points. So we have in our family a family of six, uh, four kids, 12 and under. Whenever it's time for us to leave and go somewhere, when we're saying, okay, get in the car, it's time to leave, inevitably, something is lost. And so we're like, where is the shoe? Where is the backpack? Where is your hat? And what we've learned over the years is that the hats are never where we keep the hats, in the closet. The shoes are never on the shoe rack there that we have for the purpose of finding shoes. And the backpacks are never where they are supposed to be. So then we've learned, and I've learned, let me look in the places that I would never expect to find this shoe or this hat. One shoe's in the backyard, one's in the front yard. The hat is under the bed. I'm like, those are the places that I'm going to look first if something is lost. Jesus is saying, if you want to find flourishing people, they're found in the last places that we would expect to look and to find them. And the best places for us to look to flourish in our lives, then, are the places that we would look last. Let me share how this looks in the first four Beatitudes. Where are flourishing people found? First, flourishing people are found at life's low points. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To be poor in spirit is to admit the poverty of our spiritual resources. To be poor in spirit is to stop saying, I can do this. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our empty-handedness 
in our absence of any spiritual advantage. Though distinct from material poverty, it's not separate because materially poor often find this blessing much easier than those of us who have material resources. Jesus says it's at the rock bottom low points in life that we can find flourishing people. In a continued struggle with sin or addiction, in the shattering of a dream, in the breakdown of a relationship, in financial hardship, Jesus said, blessed are you, as I will meet you there. One of the things that I've found in my pastoral ministry over the years, when there is a 911 moment in a marriage or a relationship, and it's gotten so bad that the couple thinks, we can't go on, there's no hope for us, that one of the main things that I seek to do in those moments is to bring them to this very first beatitude. To believe that blessed are those who have finally come to the lowest point because that's where people let go of pride. That's where people let go of pretense and that's where Jesus meets us with his power and his presence. That's where flourishing can be found. Secondly, Flourishing people are found lamenting the loss and pain in their lives and in the world. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I can't think of something that I do worse and that I think our culture does worse than mourn, than lament. In our inability to mourn, we miss both God's mourning with us and his comfort for us. We struggle with that. We want to move on. We don't know what to do when it's time to lament and mourn. Mark Iaconelli in his book, The Gift of Hard Things, says, if I were to name the suffering that exists in the West, it is ungrieved grief. It is an unwillingness to admit, to name, to embrace the pain of loss. Many of the destructive practices of the Western world can be traced to a desire to distract ourselves from grief, from what we're missing, what we've lost. I think he's right, and I think that's what Jesus is telling us. Third place to look. Flourishing people are found among the looked over. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek are the opposite of the aggressive and the assertive. To be meek is to be poised, to be patient, and to be gentle. To be meek is not to say, I'm a doormat and do whatever without any mind to injustice or ignoring injustice. The meek can name and the meek can resist injustice, but it's how they go about addressing those things. In our culture, just as in Jesus' day, meekness was seen as weakness. If our rights are violated, if we are overlooked, we get loud, we sue, we say this is not right and this is going to change now. We will get our way at any cost. But the reality is when our main motive is to fight for our rights and to assert our rights, whatever the cost, then most often, if not always, we will overlook and trample over the rights of other people. And so the cycle just continues. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, because they know that in the new creation, that there is a resurrection, that we don't have to have all of our needs and all of our rights demanded in the here and now. That's third. Fourthly, flourishing people are found 
among those who know their lack of righteousness. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Many people mistakenly think that Christianity teaches flourishing people are all the very good and moral people, the people who do what is right. But that's not what Jesus says here. Jesus says it's when we know and when we feel how far we fall short of being right and of doing right. When we know we are not what we should be, when we know where we're not where we should be, then we are blessed. Then we can flourish. We have three choices when it comes to our lack of righteousness, of not being where we should be. We can either fake it and pretend that we are there. We can either seek to meet that hunger and that thirst and that desire to be made right and redirected into other things. So we can fake it, we can feed it, or we can feel it, Jesus says, and we can focus it on God. There's a prayer that I found this week that I think captures this. It's from St. Teresa of Avila. She said, oh God, I don't love you. I don't even want to love you, but I want to want to love you. I don't know if you've ever felt like that, but Jesus says, I can meet you in that prayer. And you can begin to flourish, even if that is where you're at. So if we're looking to flourish more, these are the places where Jesus says, look to these places. This week I realized the challenge of preaching the Beatitudes. It's like you can either preach a sermon on each one or try to capture them all at once. There's so much here. And so I thought as we're doing this, we should pause right now and look at these four things. There's so much that might be hitting us. There's so many ways that it can apply to our lives. But I would encourage you right now, whether you're taking notes or not, just look at these four things and pause. And consider where are you? Are you at a low point? Have you experienced a loss? Are you being looked over in some way? Are you feeling your lack of righteousness? Instead of seeing this as something to avoid, something to get past, What might it look like for you to see this as an opportunity to flourish, to bring this to God? So I would encourage you, maybe circle one of those and reflect on that this week. Those are the places where flourishing people are found. Next, I want to talk about the places where flourishing people are formed. The next four Beatitudes form the second unit of four. Scholars note that the first are more passive, they're more oriented to God. The second four, they're more active, they're more oriented towards other people. These are four places God forms us into flourishing people. A few summers ago, we were at a family camp up in Forest Falls, and so this is at a camp called Forest Home. Our whole family spent the summer there, and what they do every time they do their orientation is they say, okay, bears live up here on the mountain. So here's the protocol and how you handle a bear encounter, should you have one. So they go over all that. Well, one night I was by myself. I was walking back to our cabin, and I heard all this rustling around the corner, and I looked, and sure enough, there was a bear who was trying to get into a trash can in one of the buildings through a screen. And so at that point, I did not follow the protocol. I was moving towards the bear, which is not what you're supposed to do with my phone out so I could get a picture, so I could prove to all the people who were with me that I saw this bear. And so I'm going, and the bear starts to walk up to the hillside, 
And I'm like, oh, no, it's leaving. So I run over to our cabin, and I get these, our two teenage girl child care workers, and I'm like, come with me. There's a bear. And so they're like, what, what? There's a bear. And we all go look at this bear. But it's kind of up the hill and, and gone by the time they get there. And so I'm all excited, and I come to share with Amelia and our friends who were there, and they were like, what? Why did you go towards the bear and bring those teenage girls into danger by bringing them with you towards the bear? I said, oh, yeah, that's right. But I looked at the bear, and when I met his eyes, I just felt like we had this connection. So that was, that was my <laughs> explanation to them. The places that we would normally run from, the places that we would normally avoid, Jesus says, these are the places I want you to move into. That's where you are formed to flourish. The first one of these places, first, number one, flourishing people are formed in broken places with broken people. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive Mercy. Flourishing is not found in staying staying safe and comfortable, but by moving into places where messiness and suffering is in order to bring compassion and healing. Second, flourishing people are formed in the struggle with hypocrisy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is speaking to the difference between what we appear to be on the outside and what we are on the inside, and Jesus is saying there should be integrity. These things should match. Flourishing people know they have a tendency to portray an outwardly pure life, to perform for others so other people would see them and they would gain their approval. And so we're moved below the surface to ask in those moments where we're struggling with hypocrisy, why am I doing this? Do I want to be seen by other people? Do I want to be seen by God so he'll owe me? Or do I pursue God? Do I follow what he has to say because I want to see him, and that is my reward. In that struggle with hypocrisy, purity of heart is formed. Third, flourishing people are formed through conflict. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In large part, in the family that I grew up in, we avoided conflict. And so for me, conflict was always something to be avoided. Conflict is bad. You want to do everything you can to either ignore it, or if it happens, you take care of it really quickly, as fast as possible. And so, in the early years of our marriage, people would ask us, how's it going? How's married life? And I always had this answer where I would say, oh, I'm learning now what it really means to love another person. I don't think I ever knew what that even meant. And what I meant by that is I'm learning how conflict actually strengthens and shapes love. Because I had no concept of that. That there was no other way for two people to grow closer than through conflict. And we all tend toward different reactions when it comes to conflict in our lives. We can be peace breakers. We can be peace fakers like I was, or we can be peacemakers. Jesus says conflict is an opportunity for us to reflect the gospel, become more like Jesus, and bring peace into the lives of others. So he says, move into conflict, not away. Fourth, flourishing people are formed by being mistreated for doing what is right. If this is an unexpected, if this is the upside-down path 
to human flourishing, we can expect there'd be misunderstanding if we're trying to live it out. We can expect there would be resistance and maybe even rejection. So if our life matches the reverse beatitudes that we looked at earlier, more than Jesus' beatitudes, Jesus says we're moving away from the flourishing life. But look at what verse 13 says. Jesus' words are focused on what people say about us whether we're being reviled, persecuted, or the things that are uttered against us. And so the question is, what version of the flourishing life are we going to live? The version that is based on what other people might say about us or based on what Jesus says? But these are these four places, places that we would not normally go to, but places that Jesus says, move into these places. That's where I can shape you. That's where I can form you to flourish. Lastly, if these are the places where flourishing people are found and formed, how can we find ourselves there? How can we flourish? Is it possible? Well, the order, as I mentioned earlier, to the Sermon on the Mount is significant. Jesus begins with the Beatitudes, that's his introduction, and then he moves into other parts of his teaching. He talks about anger. He talks about marriage. He talks about nonviolence and lust. In order, in order for us to understand and see how we can experience the flourishing life, we have to keep things in their proper order. This week, as I was reading different scholars and pastors who were writing on the Sermon on the Mount, I came across what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and he said, here is my rule that I have Learn from the Sermon on the Mount in my pastoral ministry. He says, I won't talk to anyone about following the specific moral teaching of the Sermon on the Mount unless they have already conformed to and are living the Beatitudes. I read that earlier in the week and I'm like, I'm not sure I understand what he's saying with that. But the more that I spent time in the Beatitudes, the more I thought, I think he's right on. That if we come to Jesus and say, I need help with my broken marriage, he says, Beatitudes first. If we come and say, I need, to, I need to stop worrying, I'm worrying, I'm anxious so much, he says, Beatitudes first. If we come and we say, I have a problem with lust, Jesus says, I want you to go to the Beatitudes first. If we say we're stuck in a conflict, it's ruining my life, Jesus says, Beatitudes first. Because the Beatitudes show us we can only find flourishing and blessing by grace, through the gospel. It's not only that the Beatitudes come first, but the first Beatitude needs to come first. As another pastor said, the very purpose of every command in the Sermon on the Mount is to drive the hearers back to the first Beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Why is this? Because if we respond to any part of the Sermon on the Mount and we say, I can do this, just show me what to do, then we're already off track. And we have to start back at the beginning. The flourishing life is only possible when we realize we cannot, but Jesus can and did. And he can bring the flourishing grace and power of the gospel to our lives. One more list that I want to share. If we are going to flourish, 
We need to look at the places where flourishing people are found. We need to move into those places. But first of all, and primarily, we need to look to Jesus. Because Jesus emptied himself and became poor so we would become rich in him. Jesus mourned with us and for us. He was a man of sorrows. Jesus was meek when he was accused so we would inherit the resurrection. Jesus hungered and thirsted for us so we would be righteous. Jesus was pure in heart. He always saw the Father's will. Jesus made peace by his blood on the cross to reconcile us to God and us to each other. And Jesus was persecuted for righteousness so that he would have the joy of bringing us back and working the flourishing life in us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this sermon, these Beatitudes, we have this mixed feeling about them. We're drawn in because they're so different in the life that they describe and how this life is found and how it is formed in us. I pray that this morning we would sit in that first beatitude, that we would know our empty-handedness, we would know we can't do this in our own strength, and you would meet us there, that we would look to you, the flourishing one, that we would look to you in the places where we feel empty in our low points, the places where we're struggling, and that you would meet us with fresh and empowering grace. We pray this in your name. Amen.